it's about to get a whole lot harder to find our journalism. I'm Linda Solomon Wood, founder and publisher of Canada's National Observer. Canadians deserve news that they can trust. With Meta's recent announcement that they are going to be enforcing a news blockade across Canada, it's going to be a lot harder for readers to connect with the publications they value, like Canada's National Observer. At a time when climate disinformation has reached a fevered pitch, Canada needs a shared sense of truth. We want a public driving climate action forward together. And journalism has such an important role to play. Our journalists depend upon readers to subscribe. Those subscriptions pay for the high-impact award-winning reporting you see on Canada's National Observer and you hear on our remarkable podcast. That's why I'm asking you today to support Canada's National Observer. Buy a subscription. Help us stand up to big tech. The best way you can help during this critical time is by becoming a paying subscriber. Get 50% off an annual subscription when you use the code META2023. Just log on to nationalobserver.com slash subscribe. Don't let big tech block Canada off from Canadian reported and produced news. This is a podcast produced by Canada's National Observer. I'm Zara Kazema, associate producer of podcasts. The climate crisis is forcing us to pay attention to what we have and what we can lose if we don't do more to protect the environment. Just off the coast of British Columbia lies a stretch of islands that teems with diversity and life. The land, its skies, and the bodies of water around it have been protected for thousands of years by local guardians. The story you're about to hear is one of a nation that can never let its guard down against fishers, tankers, and outsiders who continue to impose dissonant laws. This is the story of Haida Gwaii. on the Pacific Ocean off the northern coast of Paraguay's Graham Island, near the Masset Reserve, one of two main Haida communities. The other one, Skidigate, is about 100 kilometers south. The waters here are teeming with gray whales, humpbacks, blackfish, and dolphins. What's the closest you guys have come to them? Like right, right here, Pentacle? I've had one swim under my boat before. Oh, okay. Great under my boat. Uh, it was a gray whale. Oh, they're breaching offshore. Oh, it's 
The Haida Guardians, the eyes and ears of the territory, are taking us on their daily patrol. The Guardians monitor the health of the coasts here and keep poachers away. They're trained in conservation to the same level as Canada's Department of Fisheries officers. Right now you're looking around and tide's going out. Yeah. It's calm. When we come in this afternoon, when it starts to come in, you'll feel the wind pick up. That's Barney Edgars, the Guardian skipper. He's been out on the water since before he could walk. All of the Guardians are experienced and knowledgeable fishermen. But when you look at the tide books, I can tell you which day is going to be calm next month. Yeah. Just by reading this. Yeah. And a lot of the guys don't know that yet, and their ancestors already knew that just before the big moon. They know they could travel from here to there. Today, they're checking on seaweed beds in a remote channel. Seaweed is a traditional food for Haida people. Right now we're just going through the channel and then we're going to get around the point here we should be out of the inlet. Uh, head out as far as the place called Seven Mile. If we can get around the corner, we're going to go another two clicks and then into uh, the rocks. Seaweed and the ecosystems it thrives in are delicate. The Haida incorporate their ancestral philosophy of only taking what you need. Best way I explain our job as Haida Guardians, fishery guardians, is uh, where DFO's line stopped with the First Nations, we can pick up and we can talk to our people, let them know that you know, we're here, we need to save our resources and go back to the old ways, as I said before, take what you need and leave the rest for others. Robert Russ loves being a Haida Guardian. He works to keep sport fishermen, poachers, or potential invaders of Haida territory in check. He also has a soft spot for elders and making sure they get their traditional food. So what we'll do is we'll harvest it, we'll pick it up, and we put it in these uh, onion sets. Yeah. We take it out of the water, dip it in the water three times just to get it a little bit more salty. Oh, wow. And then we take it back home. What my in-laws do is they put it inside their house with their fireplace, and then they uh, they dry it. They dry crisp. it that way, or some people will cook it in the oven. Others will do the natural way, just let the sun do. Haida Gwaii, formerly called the Queen Charlotte Islands, located 100 kilometers off so-called British Columbia's west coast. It's home to coastal rainforests, wetlands, sand dunes, beaches, jagged snow-capped mountains streams and lakes, and hundreds of islands. Some of the plants and animals here exist nowhere else on the planet. It's often referred to as the Galapagos of the North. Although Haida Gwaii has become a popular tourist destination for wilderness adventure seekers, the Haida have lived and thrived here for millennia. The sea, the land, the water, to the Haida, everything here is connected. The ocean feeds the forest. The forest feeds the wildlife and cleans the air. The creeks carrying spawning salmon feed the people. Yeah, they're pretty lucky. 
Like this is a salmon berry made here. Oh, where? Helpful berry. Oh, we got licorice fern there. That fern over there is is a tea and medicina as well. Wow. This is a pharmacy. Yeah, our pharmacy is in the backyard, right? I guess we can kind of see. Marnie York knows the forest. She's a harvester of traditional food and medicine. She loves working with youth who travel here from all over the world to learn about this stunning and unique habitat. In 1985, Marnie joined the front lines of a Haida-led blockade to protect the southern part of the island from logging. So you heard about it? Where were you? I was in, I was at my cousin's house in Prince Rupert on the mainland there with my cousins and Uncle Paul came in, Paul Pearson, and he said they're arresting Haida's and that they need Haida's. So we all jumped up and ran and got our camping gear and headed out on a seaplane and landed and spent the night with everybody in camp. Had an amazing connection with the stories and laughter and of course with the objective of stopping the clear-cut logging on Haida Gwaii. After a standoff that saw some Haida forest protectors arrested, including elders, they were successful in stopping old-growth trees from being cut down. Making the call and heeding the call for standing up and protecting, that was the call home that I had. So I've been home ever since. Guayhanas, the area they were fighting for, is now a nationally protected area and recognized Haida heritage site. The forests are not just important. Wood is intertwined with Haida culture and tradition. Totems, some ancient and overgrown with moss, newer ones by carvers skilled in this delicate craft, watch over territory in Haida villages here. These days, people travel from around the world to access these remote archipelagos for fishing vacations. That is uh, on the northwest tip of Haida Gwaii in a location called Alungslung, which is right on the northwest coast of Haida Gwaii where a lot of our best fishing occurs. And unfortunately that means sport fishing lodges that are taking a lot of our resources, salmon, halibut, and anything else that they can because it's poor defense on behalf of the government of Canada as in fisheries. So for the most part, they're totally unregulated and uh, it's a free for all out there. So we've had some good. Marnie still needs to be on guard. Recently, she joined a movement of Haida women known as Daughters of the River to assert their rights over outsiders. Sport fishing was threatening their sustenance during the height of the COVID-19 pandemic. We went out there and maintained our presence, the Haida presence and protecting because there have been some nasty incidences of uh, 
disrespect from employees towards our Haida people. And that's the challenge that we have as First Nations. We have the most vested interest of anyone in our territory. And as a warrior society, we're not gonna be pushed around. The warrior spirit is strong and healthy. And there's good reason for that. This land is their life, their school, their pantry. So the harvesting of our food resources, the main priority is to feed your family, to feed the young ones and for them to learn. A lot of the Masset people, we've had loggers and commercial fishermen and to earn their living off that resource is, is something that we have partaken. It's always learning. And for people that have no understanding, I find that if you share the information and the, possibly the numbers, the statistics, and how limited the resource could be, how easily it's affected by the temperature for the salmon, the salmon eggs, and people are pretty reasonable. The defending of our resources as First Nations people is never ending. Defending the salmon, defending the forest, defending the mining, defending, you know, it's, it's never ending. Never ending and I don't see Food source for our people. So protecting our food sources is big. Edward Davis is a Haida singer, dancer, former firefighter, former guardian, now working in the Haida Forestry Department. He's explaining the intricate connections between the salmon and the forest. So having the forest in the ground to have that shade and everything to protect the salmon, it's another, like we look at the tinge of our water, it's very brown from the soil, so the highway like that, but some places where we walk in creek where it's clear and the forest actually gives them a canopy. So it's really important to have forest in and around rivers. We are near the mouth of the Helene River. Edward's family has a village site nearby close to what was formerly called Toe Hill, now referred to by its Haida name Ta Tada. It's a massive volcanic plug which is a geographical formation that occurs when lava cools inside a vent of an ancient volcano and the connecting deposit is eroded away on the north end of Haragua's Grand Island. Where we're going now is uh, where my family comes from, our clan, the Kunlanish Janas. This is uh, our territory. And villages starts from way over that way and it goes almost halfway towards the park so it's a very big area. Ocean waves smash the rocky shorelines that curve into a sandy white beach. The jagged tree-topped cliff of Tatira is a popular lookout spot for villagers but for Edward this is his second home. Oh yeah it's always feels warming to come walking into a territory I know that my family's from and I think the reason they picked this was because you get food right out outside your front door. The view from the village site stunning. 
look at that background. You can see Toe Hill. Look, oh, this is a dream. <laughs> don't have a heart attack on me. I don't want to have to do first aid. Oh my gosh, can I take this? Stop, 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 stop. I gotta take a photo here because look at the benches. I didn't even notice them until now. It's breathtaking and a rare photo op, but it needs constant monitoring to keep it that way. Well, you look back in the old days, right, and the, our, our people before non-First Nations made contact here, we're always protecting our, our resources. It's in our blood, right? Uh, we're not, we don't have to, but it's in our blood to protect everything around us. Everything means something to us. Everything around us, like spruces, they offer us the pitch to help our wounds, right? It just, everything around us is, means a lot to the Haida. Just because it's there, it's probably there to help us. Yes, it's beautiful. And so, uh, what about, uh, do you know of anything that is currently threatened um, in relation to the waterways, whether that's rivers or creeks or oceans? We're always threatened all the time, right? Climate change is changing everything, right? And it's it's a threat. And we're, we're trying to defend as best as we can, best as what well, tools we have. And the other one is having um, ships going by our waterway. It's a big one. So if any of them ever have an oil spill, it'd be devastating to our, to all of us. Right, it's a, real, a really bad impact if we ever, 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 ever have it. And we'll, I'm hoping we'll never will. Edward says they can't ward off the increasing tanker traffic alone for long. Right? And it's up to the governments to come here and visit. Because they're making decisions on way over there for us on the west here. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't make sense. That's where marine biologist and Haida Nation member Dan McNeil comes in. He's the Marine Stewardship Director for the Council of the Haida Nations. Dan heads up the Coastal First Nations Fisheries Resources Reconciliation Agreement for the Haida Nation. It's a federal program that provides funding for the First Nations to work collaboratively with the government in the governance, management, conservation, and use of fisheries resources. Hi, the name's Kwis Lahilga, which means arguing with Southeast. My older brother's name, Haida name, translates to Southeast, so I think my Chennai was probably fairly observant as one as a kid. But anyways, uh, English name's Dan McNeil. I'm from the Nyquinkigwai Raven Clan, born and raised here on Haida Gwai. We recognize the way things that were managed prior to us being involved, having an equal seat at the table where we can legitimately voice our concerns rather than being treated like a glorified stakeholder, maybe a little higher than a regular fisherman out there. We actually have a table and voice to express ourselves. We're moving in a new paradigm, I think, and uh, you know, I don't want to make it all fluffy and make it sound like, oh, DFO is great, they're working with, you know, like, there's a reason why we're in this current state. And I'd almost point the finger like, you guys put us in this situation. This is a mess. By you guys, you guys, he means the federal and provincial authorities governing the fishing industries who created the mess of various species now at risk due to exploitation. Salmon are dwindling, marine life are threatened, and abalone is endangered. And you guys are 
partly to blame, right? Fishermen don't overfish unless if they're allowed to, and you guys allowed that. It wasn't us that put ourselves in this situation. Like, abalone is a prime example. We had a unilateral decision-making process that they allowed the commercial exploitation of these things to occur, and then our rights get affected at the end of the day. Not cool. And now through our title case, abalone is one of our priority species we're looking at. And you know, there's things around compensation and I'm just like, ooh, this one's ripe for that, right? Like these guys screwed it up and we had to live with the consequences. We have elders often on the deathbed and that's a common ask. And you don't know how troubling it is for our are people that work with our elders to be like, I'm sorry, I can't get you that feed, right? Abalone, a marine snail related to clams with a colorful pearl-like inlay used in First Nations regalia and jewelry is not only a traditional food source for the Haida, it has deep cultural and spiritual significance to them. But in 1990, the Canadian government listed abalone as endangered due to over-harvesting by industry and poachers. Since then, it's been illegal for Haida to even touch them. And that's all they're asking for is that one last time to have a taste, because in the eyes of Canada, the moment we touch one, it's legal. You can't even poke the thing, because there's a thing about harassment of species at risk, right? So that's where we're at right now in terms of trying to reassert ourselves. In 2002, the Council of the Haida Nation filed a claim in the Supreme Court of British Columbia asserting Aboriginal rights and title to the lands, waters, seabeds, and air of Haida Gwaii. Over 20 years later, that claim has yet to go to trial. When it comes to Indigenous rights in Canada, the judicial system is notoriously slow, but the delay hasn't stopped the Haida from exercising those rights. And I think we're taking the approach, we're going to start doing our own surveys, we're going to figure out where these things are, and we'll decide for ourselves if a harvest is warranted because these folks that make decisions off-island, they don't even know where these things live, they don't know how much is there. We're out here living, and this is our territory, so I think if we could get to that point of uh, mapping these things out and having a true understanding and then be able to prove it through science, being like, calm down, there's enough here. But the decisions on how to harvest and maintain their culture and livelihoods are made collectively in Haida governance from the top down. And now we're managing it without the department in our way. It's always powerful when you have these committee meetings, when you have a, a nunai, a grandmother come, and she kind of sways the group being like, all right, we've taken enough, we should shut her down. And everybody's just like, well, I'm not arguing with this nunai, right? Like, shut her down, right? So it's, it, you know, I think that's the, the powers in the people's hands, right? If we're gonna screw it up, it's gonna be a collective thing, not Dan making the decisions at CHN, it's the community. When you take something, you give thanks, you, you go process it, you smoke it, you give it away. There's so much more there of a connection. And it feels good doing it, right? You feel Haida. The number of tanker ships cruising past Haida territorial waters is alarming. The construction of a massive $17 billion LNG terminal in Kitimat 
to meet rising global demand for so-called cleaner energy, the LNG traffic is expected to dramatically increase. An oil spill would devastate Haida Gwaii. But it's not just oil spills. The tanker ships hit and kill whales. Just this year alone, four whales were killed off the shores of Haida Gwaii. Two of them were confirmed to have been hit by commercial ships. And one of the threats that they list is acoustic and vessel traffic. So there's another threat, just by the presence of these things occurring, right? Cargo ships, they like to say bucks, they're a business. Prince Rupert, they have, uh, the Harbour Authority charges you. You come in, you drop an anchor, you're on the clock, you're paying to be there. One of the ways they curtail that is they'll come to Haida Gwaii, throw the pick, no one's charging them. So that's one thing we're looking at in terms of being like, we'd probably rather shoo them off, but maybe we impose our attacks. Maybe we make it so disincentivize it where they're just like, all right, we're going to go pave to go into Rupert or whatever, just get them off our territory. The LNG terminal is expected to be operating by 2025 with about 400 ships navigating the routes in and out of Kitimat. We're just recognizing uh, as we move forward here through time, you know, there's only going to be more vessel traffic. How do we assert ourselves and our values? And these are the things we care about. Skana, killer whale, that's a pretty highly regarded supernatural being that we've had tons of oral stories over, right? It's a crest, it's X, Y, and Z for our culture, so they can't speak on their behalf. We have to speak for them because no one else is really, you know, maybe we got a few other scientists that agree, okay, this is a pretty important area for killer whales. There's that type of threats, right? It's not just the tanker breaking down and washing up on our shores. There's other things where being like, hey, even the, your guys' science is saying this, right? These scientists over here who care about this species are saying these are threats and they're affecting them. Like we get whales washing up that are showing getting hit by, we can only expect maybe more of that happening as, as long as we keep increasing the shipping traffic around our waters. Sometimes we make decisions that take us down a path we don't anticipate. That's what happened to me back in 2021. Hi, I'm Sandra Bartlett. I'm the managing producer of podcasts at Canada's National Observer. That spring of 2021, I came across a story about a biologist in a remote corner of British Columbia fighting for wild salmon. The article was an excerpt from her about-to-be-published book, Not On My Watch. I bought the book, and when I turned the book's final page, I knew this story needed to be a podcast. But it took months to gather the documents, track people down, and travel to BC to talk to people. And as we know, time is money. We need your support to create more podcasts like The Salmon People. The easiest way to support us is to purchase a one-year subscription. Another powerful way to support our podcasts is to make a direct donation. Go to nationalobserver.com forward slash donate to make your contribution. For Council of the Haida Nation President Jason Alsop, or Gagwis, as he's known by his traditional name, bridging the gaps between the colonial worldview of understanding conservation, habitat, and Haida laws and rights is a balancing act. 
Well, I, I think that's, again, the tensions or, or conflicts is the different perspectives and, and viewpoints when it comes to, to looking at land and, and water management is commercial or industry or government perspective at times is about that, you know, how much, how much can we take? Where's that line? And it's done usually in a way that is quite isolated or compartmentalized from the broader ecosystem and the interconnection of things. And, and so you're, you're not really considering the full scope of the impacts or the um, relationships between land and water, between species, between people. Um, yeah, for the, the height of nation and for height of people, I've been very concerned about the um, development of LNG or frack gas on the, um, the coast here. And, Gagwis feels somewhat conflicted. On one hand, he supports the sovereignty of other nations, such as the Heisla Nation near Kinemat, which is a partner in the LNG project. But on the other hand, those ships will move through Haida territory, and the rights of the Haida are being overlooked in the decision-making process. It's a challenging issue because, you know, we also respect the sovereignty of other nations to make decisions within their territory. That's within their, um, their rights. But we, we are hitting this point where a decision made in one place has impacts mm -hmm. in another place, like here, and the way the environmental assessment processes work and the way that the impacts are, are looked at, again, are compartmentalized. They're not, they're not looked at from a whole perspective. And so the, the process is flawed in that way. And, um, you know, it is something that I've flagged and, and certainly made known to both provincial and federal government that this process that doesn't consider the shipping routes and the impacts of shipping within approving a plant is flawed and, and isn't properly um, acknowledging or respecting our rights and our title and jurisdiction over our territory. And so it's... Uh... Although reconciliation and rights recognition are making progress in governments, there is a lot of work ahead on how to define those rights. The provincial and federal government, have an, they have their own jurisdictional um, dispute over submerged lands and, and, you know, the intertidal area. Canada's position is they don't necessarily have exclusive title to the marine space, that there's international law, international commitments, the navigable rights of shipping and all those things. In terms of exclusive title, you know, that's our position right now, legally, that this is Haida territory. You know, when it comes to governance and, and management, that's the position we take. Rights and sovereignty are the same thing as cultural knowledge and traditions for the Haida. In one of their creation stories, the raven appeared alone one day on Rose Spit Beach. Before this, only water covered the earth. Suddenly, the raven saw a huge clamshell and heard voices coming from inside. He coaxed a small creature out of the shell, one that looked peculiar with two legs, a round head, and covered at the top with long black hair and soft skin. This creature was the first human. More emerged afterward, and the creation of the rest of the Haida world unfolded. Would you say that when there were certain species or areas of land that were threatened, land and water, that that coincided, you know, with the impacts on the Haida, and now that, you know, Haida are starting, you know, really thriving in, in their culture in different ways, do you think that it 
coincides with the thriving of the land and the water and how well that's doing. Yeah, I mean, those things are interconnected. The, you know, the, the culture comes from the abundance of the territory, from the land and the sea. And so mm. if we don't have that, that base of self-sufficiency, the ability to, again, um, get food from here, to get the wood from here, you, you can't carve the poles and you can't make the masks and you can't make the boxes and you can't feed the people, mm. you're not going to be out. You're going to be dependent on going to the grocery store, dependent on, on food from elsewhere. So in our culture, you know, was the ability to create our visual language, the, the form line, which is, you know, now called Haida art. There actually isn't a word for art in the Haida language. It's, it was just, we didn't have a written language. So that is how, peop, how our people passed on history through the designs, through the crests, and the, the stories that are embedded within, within the, um, the form line and, again, continually expressed in, in different ways. Art you know. is their language and their culture. You know, tattooing, through, again, carving masks, carving poles, through painting. But because we had the abundance here, the ability to have, you know, plenty of food to not just survive, but thrive through the winter and, and have our winter feasts and potlatches and, and bring people together in passing on that history. You don't have the luxury of doing that if you don't have the food to, mm -hmm. to sustain you over those seasons. And so that cycle of moving to the seasons and, and gathering, you know, what is available and abundant and being able to put that away and being able to um, have the time and the ability to um, create what is you know now considered a an art and sits amongst the the best examples of human expression in the world in terms of the visual quality and the well-made objects of the carving you know that was born out of that the health of the land and the sea and, and that's our wow. challenge as a government and our as a people and as clans and families today is to kind of maintain that balance um, that we're looking after the land and the sea that that can still provide for us and we've also are, are living in this contemporary time and have jobs and, you know, use vehicles and all those other things, too, and that we need to, um, again, to strike this balance between passing on our culture and, and our way of life and also adapting to um, the realities of today and, and trying to, um, you know, keep all those things in balance and recognize the interconnection of all those things and make sure there's the time and space for just carrying it on and, and being who we are. The success of sustaining their way of life and protecting their rights and the environment comes down to being united through the traditional consensus process, says Gay Guise. Not easy. It takes time, it takes energy to, to work through coming to consensus or, or coming to agreement and, and working together as one. And, and that's been a fortunate position we've been in in leadership to have, again, those chiefs and clans and, and people who recognize that we're, we're stronger together, speaking with one voice. And, you know, that's one of the things my, my grandmother talks about just in a clan perspective, like you're stronger together. And, and that's really the, um, the best advice I, I could share, you know, we, we work again together, our Council of the Haida Nation, our village councils, our hereditary chiefs. We work with our, our neighboring municipal communities and the, the settlers here. And we've found, again, found creative ways to work with government 
Again, we don't compromise or, or weaken our position, but again, at times have to recognize where there is common ground and again, really just trying to... For the National Observer, I'm Brandy Lord in Haida Gwaii. This report was made possible with funding from the Institute for Journalism and Natural Resources and the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation.